Chapter 5, Uprooting. I am not strong enough, so I rest in my saving grace. The sorrow gives dimension to the joy. The pain makes beauty take shape. The hope stands as light against the backdrop of despair. I was resuscitated as the person I was created to be. The person that had always previously been defined by darkness. I was unable to see her, to know her before. But here she is, finally. Now that we have addressed the roots, I must describe the process I had to go through to become free. It was a journey of pressing into the presence of God, seeking His face, and doing some serious heart work. I had discovered the roots of my insecurity, but the process of uprooting would take divine intervention. As I mentioned before, the issues at the core of my insecurity and warped worldview were pride, misplaced identity, and the fear of man that manifested as shame. During the process of writing this book, when I studied the word and really pressed in for God to reveal more about the truth of my identity, he took me back to my childhood. He helped me to see that as far back as I could remember, I was outgoing. People would come over to the house and five-year-old CG would perform Survivor by Destiny's Child in her favorite ruffled cheetah print shirt and toy sunglasses. I would make up songs and sing at the top of my lungs to my family, basking in their wild applause at my off-tune singing. But mostly, I was just happy to be having fun. I really thrived in that little bubble of childhood joy until I was about 11. We've already gone over all the traumatic, terrible seeds that were planted in that season, but one outcome of holding in all that deep shame was that I learned to believe that what was unique about me wasn't so special. I learned that my desire to be in the spotlight and my gift of being able to articulate myself and command attention was not valuable. I couldn't change who I was, so I simply tried to become someone else. Growing up, the one thing I was good at was school, so I put most of my focus and attention into that. Along with people-pleasing, my academics were where I got my value and self-worth. It seemed too risky to be rebellious in my strict Nigerian household, so I bided my time, excelled academically, and waited until I could leave the house. As my high school graduation grew closer, I felt the anticipation of leaving my home shiver through my bones. There was an intense aching and longing to move away. I placed all my hope, excitement, and desire into that dream of going off to college and finally getting the freedom I needed to find myself. What I should have realized is that when you go searching for something you have never seen, you're likely to end up with something you never wanted. When I got to the University of Texas at Austin, I realized that I wasn't as smart as I thought, and the friends I had hoped to find would not come so easily. I felt lost. I had struggled with depression in high school, but I fell deeper into anxiety and depression in college because the things I used to define myself and cover my shame for so long were abruptly ripped away from me. I was left exposed, afraid, and vulnerable. I had made leaving home a kind of savior to me. It was the one thing I thought would bring me joy after years of sadness, and it let me down completely. In fact, it made things worse because the problem was never my environment. It was me. 
During my first few months of college, I went through cycles of fighting to be liked and accepted. I would feel satisfied and sanctified for a while, and then the darkness I thought I had escaped would catch up to me. The all-too-familiar, chest-tightening, stomach-dropping, anxiety-inducing fear of what people thought would drag me back into insecurity and shame. I found myself so busy being the parts of myself I thought other people wanted that I couldn't possibly be whole. I gave everyone a piece until I had nothing, nothing left to hold on to. My insecurities were magnified at my university because I began to rely more heavily on others to dispel my loneliness. The crazy thing is that, for the most part, I was able to make friends and join groups after those first few months, but it was never enough. My loneliness never subsided because it wasn't about other people. I simply projected my own self-judgment onto others. My lack of authenticity created an echo chamber for my fears. Because I didn't know how to just be myself, I wasn't vulnerable enough to realize that others were facing the exact same struggles as me. I saw my lack of close friendships as confirmation that all my self-depreciating thoughts were true. Because I became insecure about my academics, I thought other people in my major must see me as dumb or wonder how I got there. Because I felt insecure about my personality, I thought other people viewed me as too serious or too corny or too stuck up. Eventually, that kind of mentality slipped into every area of my life, particularly my appearance. Freshman year, I wore clothes that were pretty revealing. I was raised in a household where a very strict standard of modest dressing was enforced. So part of my reasoning was simply wanting to explore what I had never been allowed to do growing up. There was another reason, though. To be completely transparent, I thought I was cute enough. But in order to get the attention I wanted, I had to dress a certain way. At 18 years old, if someone tried to tell me that these were my motives, that I would have called them a liar and a hater. I would have said that I wore what I did because it made me look good and feel good. Sometimes that was the case. But sometimes I simply wanted to be chosen. I didn't trust my opinion of myself. So... Even though I thought I looked good, I needed others, particularly men, to validate it before I believed it. The twisted part is that no matter how many compliments or conversations I had, I could not cover my insecurity and self-consciousness. Although I was in constant need of affirmation, I couldn't possibly receive enough of it to love myself better, so my self-esteem plummeted. I have to emphasize, it wasn't what I wore or said that took me away from God. Thinking about this in the wrong direction would lead to legalism. It was being far from God that caused me to behave in a way that didn't honor him. Insecurity wasn't my sin. It was simply a tragic consequence of my imperfect humanity that caused me to sin. Before anything else, my sin was one of the heart and mind. My problem was much deeper than just revealing clothes. My sin was idolatry. I didn't know how to center God in my life, so I was bowing down at the altar of my insecurities. They had such a complete hold on me that I couldn't even recognize it. My insecurity was the most dangerous kind of enemy, the kind you allow to get close and grow unchecked because it looks like a friend. I knew there had to be more. I remembered the joy-filled faces of church people I'd grown up with all my life. If that was real... If God really made all the difference, then I wanted to give him a fighting chance to heal me. 
I tried to shake off the feeling that I never truly be happy or at peace, but those thoughts tormented me. I attempted to distract myself with schoolwork, various organizations, partying, and men. I only knew how to find my validation from external sources. They helped me feel okay for a while, but relief was always fleeting. When I was finally by myself again, the reality that I felt lost and alone came crashing back down on me. That cycle continued throughout freshman year as I sunk deeper into a horrible mental health spiral. I began to withdraw into myself more and more. During the second semester of my freshman year of college, my depression got worse and I began to experience anxiety attacks. By then, I had painted such a confident persona that I was embarrassed by the idea of not loving myself as much as I claimed to. I was afraid to admit my struggles to others, but most of all, I was afraid to admit them to myself because in some twisted way, I thought that acknowledging my rapidly declining mental health would highlight some part of me that was actually less worthy of love. It was simply easier to pretend. On some level, I felt that my insecurities were genuinely things I should hate about myself. I never consciously decided to adopt this mentality, though. It is only with the benefit of hindsight that I'm able to clearly see what was happening. But at the time, I had a very fake-it-till-you-make-it sort of attitude. I thought that if I projected the person I wanted people to see for long enough, then I would become her and I could finally come out of hiding. I didn't realize I was making myself unbearably lonely by making sure I was the only one who knew the real me, flaws and all. That early experience of shame and perversion deeply affected my ability to be vulnerable. I unknowingly sealed myself off, unable to understand my own identity, much less develop the capacity to share it with anyone else. One night, toward the end of freshman year, I finally had enough. After struggling through a day of anxiety attacks and trying not to disturb my roommate with my quiet sobs, I was finally ready to surrender. I was tired of being in pain. I was fed up with the insanity of repeating the same cycles over and over. I had nowhere else to turn than the fate of my childhood. So in my room, by myself, with no worship music playing or sermon to stir me up, I recommitted my life to Jesus. I promised to seek him for myself this time, not for my parents or anyone else. 2017, in my freshman dorm room, was the first time I came to the end of myself, but it would not be the last. That night, I began to see Jesus as more than nice. I saw him as necessary. I took my anxiety, depression, and loneliness to the cross. I took my people-pleasing and attention-seeking to the cross. I took my identity to the cross. That night marked a turning point in my relationship with God, but I still had a long way to go. The Bible says to pick up your cross daily, but I definitely skipped a few days on my journey back to faith. Life got much brighter when I began to take my faith more seriously. When I sought God, he began to remind me who I was in him and his light began to shine in my dim life. However, I still wasn't whole. It's important to realize that we can be in Christ and still be broken if we don't complete the process of unlearning. If we try to stack the gospel on top of all our detrimental habits and ideas, we may end up saved without any real healing taking place. Prayer works, but you can't just pray away the problem 
without the faith to do something about it? Why do you think there are so many Christians with worldviews that are against everything Jesus taught? Their spirits are saved, but their minds are not renewed. After rededicating my life to Jesus, the anxiety and depression faded enough for me to function. But every so often, I got this feeling that things weren't quite right. I was never really able to be consistent and committed to my relationship with God. I'd done everything I knew how to do. I was far from perfect, but when I said I was a Christian now, I knew what I meant, and that was a big deal for me. However, it still felt like something was missing. I prayed and read my Bible more, but even though I began to develop a real and authentic relationship with Jesus, it was still so volatile and inconsistent. There were still so many insecurities in my life. I told God, I'm really saved now. I'm really trying to follow you. I feel like I should be better by now. I feel like I should be more whole by now. By God's grace, as imperfect as I was, I stuck with my faith. Even if I couldn't feel it right away, I figured that loving Jesus more would help me love myself better. I didn't just want to cling to my family's religion anymore. I wanted to establish my relationship with God for myself. Part of it was because I believed in him, but a larger part was because I wanted him to make me feel better. Notice I said to feel better, not actually be better. I went to Jesus to fix my sadness and insecurity but I still struggled with it. It made my relationship with God like an old wooden roller coaster, unsteadily moving from one extreme to the other. My problem was that I didn't just need help from Jesus. I needed to embody him. We tend to think that surrender is a moment, but in reality, it's a process. Surrender is a journey you embark on with God as he sanctifies you daily. As I press deeper into God, and surrendered more of my will for his, he helped me realize that I could deal with the symptoms of this issue all day. But because I hadn't uprooted the foundational idea that shaped my perception of myself and groomed my insecurity for years, I would continue to struggle with the same thing in him as I did outside of him. Jesus was the answer, but my solution was specific. Edward T. Welch says, as long as we are sinners, shame will be a familiar experience. The answer seems simple. Remember that in Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, through faith, he covered you with the righteous robes. He has removed your shame. This might be the only teaching a fearful person needs. However, there are many times when a solution requires more than a reminder that Jesus died for us. I'm not saying that the gospel of Jesus is not enough. What I mean is that there are teachings implicit in the gospel that need our attention. I had come into the house of the Lord, but there were specific rooms I needed to enter in order to really be healed. Sometimes, when we genuinely come to Jesus and don't find ourselves immediately set free from all our issues, we make the mistake of thinking God isn't enough. The truth is, He's more than enough. We must ask ourselves, are we just coming to God? Or have we allowed him to come into us as well? I went to God to fix me, but I hadn't allowed him to change me. I was just dealing with the symptoms, so I would never be able to fully eradicate the disease in my heart. When I realized that I would need to press deeper if I was ever going to be free, God began to change my desires so that I was desperate for more of him. When I began to pray and meditate on the word of God, 
He showed me my identity. He began to show me that the devil had twisted my personality and God-given gifts until I hated who I was divinely created to be. The enemy rooted that deceit in the depths of my heart. Therefore, I naturally bore the fruit of shame and insecurity. Because I didn't know how to live out my God-given identity, I hid in the darkness. I had all this false humility that was rooted in prideful self-righteousness. Because I was so concerned with the way people saw me, I didn't have any room to be concerned about the people I saw. Because I was so worried about my perception of myself, I didn't have any space for how God perceived me. This led to cycles of depression, loneliness, and anxiety. I have to confess that the cycle would have gone on forever if the divine grace of God hadn't reached out and interrupted me. God revealed to me that a lot of times we get saved and praise Jesus for our salvation, but if we are building the ideas and theology of the Christian life right on top of rotten foundations, then the trees of our lives will continue to bear bad fruit. Most people only see the pretty exterior of our fruit, but God knows that if you were to cut them open, they would be rotten on the inside. This is because we have roots that are corrupting his good seed, so we are unable to really reach the full potential God has for our lives. God has such a great vision and plan for us. He had so much he wanted to do for me and through me, but I was blocking my own ability to carry out his destiny for my life because I was content and complacent with my bad roots. As I grew closer and closer to God throughout college, he slowly revealed my roots and transformed me through the gospel. While I began to see the origins of my sinful behaviors, I also began to realize that those roots had become entangled in the depths of my life. But the question still remained, how could I uproot them? The final turning point came at the end of my sophomore year of college. At my university, I was one of those people who knew a lot of people across campus and was involved in everything, but I was never really very close to anyone. I was very good at sharing just enough with friends so they felt like they knew me, even though deep down I knew they didn't. How could they when I barely knew myself? Even as I'm writing this, I feel anxious about putting it out into the world because I'm not sure if I'm ready for others to see me clearly when I've only just begun to see myself. But I think if I had read something like this when I was younger, I wouldn't have felt so isolated in my feelings of inadequacy. I might not have cried so hard those nights when I was wondering what was wrong with me and why I didn't have close friends. I might not have felt so inexplicably trapped by how I wanted people, needed people to see me. I might have developed an identity that was based on something more stable than my reflection in their eyes. Perhaps on that day when I laid my head against my tear-stained pillow at 18, I would have known what to do with the sudden, earth-shattering realization that I had no idea who I was outside of what I thought people wanted me to be. Perhaps during my freshman year of college, I could have behaved in a way that was true to myself. I learned what I actually loved instead of tailoring my actions to the people whose approval I wanted. But I didn't have anything like this book. So instead, I contorted myself into an unrecognizable shape in a desperate attempt to protect myself from the loneliness that had begun to leak out sporadically from all the cracks in my facade. If I had read something like this at the time, then perhaps instead of frantically trying to treat the seemingly unconnected symptoms of my sadness, I would have been able to diagnose the disease. 
an extreme case of unknown identity. Since I didn't have a lot of guidance on what it meant to live a life that was fully committed to Jesus, even after rededicating my life to him, I was still engaging in some pretty reckless behavior. I loved Jesus, but I was young, a young woman in college. I honestly just wanted to have a good time. I went to parties and kickbacks like everyone else, but my motives were wrong. I was searching for happiness, companionship, and belonging in superficial things. I'd been participating in some questionable sexual activities throughout college as a way to get validation and attention from men. But during sophomore year, in the spring of 2018, I went too far. Let's just say I did something I never thought I would do with a man I never thought I would do it with. There was alcohol and coercion involved, but it wasn't until much, much later that I understood it as sexually abusive situation. At the end of the day, I made my decision that night, and it took me to my lowest point yet. Afterward, I took a shower in a desperate attempt to wash off the scent of regret that lingered on my skin. As the scalding hot drops of water slid over my body, I felt an overwhelming shame, unlike anything I'd ever experienced, come over me. It felt like a physical thing on top of me, suffocating me, threatening to undo me. I couldn't escape it. The shame. I tried to scrub it off, but it was all over me, within me. I wanted to hide so badly, but how could I run away from myself? Once again, I felt like Eve in the garden, naked and ashamed of my sin. As I drowned in shame, it felt like the first time in a long time that I was finally able to see myself, and I looked incredibly sad. I was a wilted, withered flower with only a faint memory of a long-forgotten spring to hold on to. I sank to the floor of the shower and sobbed, my tears mixing with the water from the shower, mixing with my guilt. Then I heard a voice clear as day, the voice of God. I heard him tell me that I couldn't love myself because I didn't love him. It seems like such a simple, obvious thing now, but at that moment, the thought had never actually crossed my mind. There were things I was insecure about, and I dealt with loneliness and anxiety, but I thought I at least loved myself. I thought I was trying my best to love God, but I was so stubbornly proud that I couldn't even see how I was hurting myself by insisting that I could control my own life. Only God could have opened my eyes. He interrupted my shame and presented the truth to me with no condemnation. Up until that moment, I understood self-hate as something that happened to other people, not me. Therefore, I suffered from it in the most detrimental way possible. I suffered in oblivion. I was someone with an open wound, walking around casually, like I wasn't about to bleed out at any moment. James 1, 23-24 says, Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at the face in the mirror and then after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Yeah. Unfortunately, that was me. At that point in college, I was an executive in my campus ministry. I had been a Christian all my life. I said I loved Jesus and I went to church every Sunday. I might have had to drag myself out of bed in the morning after a drunken night, but I went. However, none of it mattered because all the while I was trying to heal from the outside in. I followed the rules, but I did it so inconsistently and insincerely that I was no better than someone who didn't even try. 
I figured if I kept doing all the Christian things long enough, then I'd eventually become someone who would be committed, who didn't struggle so much to live for Christ. I wanted to experience the supposed freedom that was in Christ. But because I didn't really know him, see him, or love him, I was still bound to the sin he died for. I didn't want to be told what I could or couldn't do. My pride prevented me from seeing how truly broken I was. It stopped me from seeking the help I needed to get whole. It prevented me from having an intimate relationship with God. God couldn't gently tap me or redirect me with a quiet whisper. I wouldn't have listened. He loved me, so he let me exercise my free will. He let me crash and burn into an unrecognizable version of myself so I would finally be still enough to hear the truth. And at that moment, the truth set me free. The shame and guilt were not emotions from God. They were a human response to the Spirit of God in me that convicted me. He wasn't condemning me. He was inviting me to come back to Him. He wasn't pleased with my actions, but when I was at my lowest, God reminded me that nothing could separate me from His love. The Bible says, Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Romans 8, 35, 37 to 39. Even at my lowest point, God loved the hell out of me. That night, on the floor of my shower, the realization of that truth changed my life. The pivotal point didn't come when I figured out how to rid myself of shame or when I found my identity in the months after that painful night. It came right then when God showed me that even after the worst thing I'd ever done, he still loved me more than I could even comprehend. That was the moment when I suddenly saw myself and my sin for what it was. But more importantly, I saw Jesus more clearly. I wasn't distraught because my heart was broken. I was undone because God's heart was. And there I was, with a hammer in one hand and blood on the other, staring him face to face, guilty of nailing him to the cross all over again. What I would come to discover later is that there are levels to freedom because there are levels to truth. If the truth sets you free, then you can only be as free as the level of truth you're operating in. If there are undiscovered truths, then there is untapped freedom. Therefore, even though I accepted Jesus into my heart as a child, it wasn't until that miserable, tear-soaked moment in the shower that I was set free from the bondage of operating in the clutches of an unidentified condition. I was free from a hypocritical Christianity in which I daily crucified Jesus with my sin in private, but then confessed to being his child in public. I was free to finally stop lying to everyone. But most importantly, I was free to stop lying to myself about the real condition of my heart. 
as the early morning darkness spread out over the world on that warm spring night in 2018, through the shattered shards of my reality, I began to see the light. 